Uh, it's my privilege now to introduce to you someone who likely uh, needs no introduction uh, to this audience in this era, area, Dr. Greg Beal. Uh, Dr. Beal is currently the chair of biblical studies and professor of New Testament at the Wheaton Graduate School and a visiting professor of New Testament and biblical theology at Westminster. And we are delighted to say that come July, he will no longer be visiting professor, but will be professor uh, at Westminster. Um, and uh, we are delighted with that, as some of you have expressed uh, your regret that he is uh, leaving Wheaton, but is and rejoicing he's coming to Westminster. Um, when uh, Greg and his wife Dorinda were in the Westminster area as he was interviewing for the position, uh, we had opportunity uh, to sit with him with a number of students uh, in an informal gathering that were asking him uh, questions. And uh, as Craig mentioned earlier on, uh, I have the privilege of teaching a couple of courses and preaching at Westminster. And so the question I asked Greg, I don't know if you remember this, I said, tell me your philosophy of preaching. And he expressed such a clear grasp and passion for the word preached. I turned to the academic dean, and obviously not just for this reason, but for all sorts of reasons, I said, get him. To have somebody who's teaching biblical studies, who gets what it means to preach the word, was such a thrill to me and I know to others who are around. Uh, we are delighted that Greg will be part of the Westminster faculty. Uh, Dr. Beal holds degrees from Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Dallas Theological Seminary, and the PhD from Cambridge University in England. Greg, would you come and share with us, please? Let's move this this way and see if we can just move this over here. I do PowerPoint, but it never works. The uh, overheads always work, but the bulbs sometimes go out. So we'll pray through that one. I'd like you to open to Matthew. Our title for this message, actually the original one I was going to give uh, was only... Uh, supposed to speak once originally, and so I was going to give a message on uh, can the Bible be fully inspired and still contain errors, and, um, as, and, and then when it looked like some people were going to continue to be marooned in Scotland because of the volcano, uh, I was asked, could you give a second one on Saturday, and so I said, uh, well, yeah, I can do the one I'm going to give you uh, this morning, and... Um, so, uh, the title of this is the use of Hosea 11.1 1 in Matthew 2.15, colon, a thorn in the side of those who believe in, in inerrancy, question mark. Is it a thorn in the side? Let me explain myself, but first let's get the scripture before us. And um, Matthew chapter 2, we'll begin at verse um, 13 and read through verse, um, six, uh, verse 15, 
Let me just make sure. When am I supposed to finish? I have to know that because I can go on and on. What, what, when's the finish point before questions and answers? Uh, can anybody tell me? Six. I'm going to assume that I have 45 minutes because the people running the conference are not here right now. They're, they're out there. It's 45 minutes approximately. Okay. All right. Let's read, beginning at verse 13 of chapter 2. And now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt did I call my son. Let's ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Lord, we do ask that you would help us to understand your word and uh, that we would indeed know you better. We ask for the grace of the Holy Spirit in this. For your glory we pray. Amen. Uh, this passage uh, over the years, even beginning, well, way, way before the 1960s, but I remember um, sitting in a seminary classroom in the 1960s and the professor talking about this passage and uh, reflecting on a book, I believe it was a book by a fellow by the name of Dewey Beagle on the inspiration of Scripture, and uh, one of the passages adduced uh, by this uh, author in that book uh, in the mid-60s was this passage, um, and he was arguing that uh, this is a typical passage on how the Old Testament is used in the New that shows that the Scripture could not be fully authoritative. Um, and there are a number of Old Testament and the New Testament texts that are difficult. But the reason uh, that this one has been adduced repeatedly um, uh, is because, uh, at least for two reasons, and by the way, most recently it has uh, been discussed in a book um, uh, by Peter Inns called um, uh, Inspiration and Incarnation, and... Um, in, in, in which it is to be seen as a very, very difficult passage that um, uh, is, uh, he, he argued that Matthew was asserting uh, something that could not be found in the Hosea text. And uh, nevertheless, uh, somehow the text is inspired. Um, in fact, let, let me give you three views of this passage, but before I do, let me tell you the problem. Number one, in Hosea 11.1, and let's go back to Hosea 11.1. Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. And we'll be spending most of our time in Hosea. Hosea 11.1. It says, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. Now, as we're going to see, this refers, first of all, to the past exodus of Israel out of Egypt. Uh, it's a historical reference. And that it does, it's still referring to Israel uh, and, and the, the continuation of Israel. Notice uh, verse 2. The more they called them, the more the prophets called them as after they came out of Egypt, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. So there's no doubt that Israel as a nation is in mind here as they came out of Egypt and then, then as they went into the promised land. Um, and that's the first problem. 
uh, in Matthew's quotation, it of course is applied to Jesus coming out of Egypt. Jesus is not a nation. He is an individual. Well, that's the first problem. Uh, but a greater problem is that this is a reference to the past in Hosea 11.1. It is not a prophecy. If you were a student in um, Interpretation 101 at a college or a seminary, and uh, the professor said, what kind of literature is Hosea 11.1? If you said it was a direct verbal prophecy, you would make an F. It is just a historical reference back to the Exodus. And so some have said, Matthew made an F in the way he interpreted, but God salvaged it by uh, making the doctrine true. And so, yes, it's inspired, but um, uh, he, he used a very, very wacky interpretative method. Um, some, of course, have just said, <laughs> not only was the method wrong, but uh, this, is, this is just uh, mistaken. Uh, this is a good example of uh, mistakes in Scripture. So that's one way to take it. A second way to take it is to, again, say, well, the method is wrong. It's not the right interpretative approach, but, uh, you know, God is a, an amazing God, and he can take, you know, wrong interpretative methods, and then when the interpretation is written down, it's still a right doctrine. And so I, I have a book called the, uh, the Right Doctrine from the Wrong Text, and it really is... Uh, the fuller title, it's based on an article title, uh, Did Jesus and the Apostles Preach the Right Doctrine but from the Wrong Text? A number of people say that. Some deduce they were just wrong, so the Scripture can't be fully inspired. Some say, yeah, the Scripture's inspired, but interpretative method isn't. And so um, even though the method was wrong, the doctrinal conclusion is right. And there's a third way to take this passage, and that is that um, Jesus and the apostles used interpretative methods that uh, were very unusual. We shouldn't say they were wrong, but we can't use them today. Uh, it's just too, when people have tried to use these methods throughout history, they become allegorical, they begin to read things into Scripture. And so it's unusual, it's an unusual method. We, we don't want to say it's wrong, uh, after all, Jesus and the apostles used it, but we can't use it. They were under inspiration, and we are not. And so those are three ways to take this passage. There is a fourth way, and it's the way that I'm going to try to propose, and that is rather than trying to see uh, and, and, and focus on Matthew, just looking at Hosea 11.1 1 by itself. If you do that, then I think um, uh, some, some of these views hold some water, uh, especially the views that, well, he used a wrong interpretative approach, but God still inspired the conclusion, or uh, it was an unusual approach. We shouldn't say it's wrong, but, uh, um, uh, you know, we can't use it today, but it was fine for them. I, I really think that what is going on here, Matthew I believe, is not trying to exegete, that is, interpret Hosea 11.1 1 just on its own, focusing only on that. I think that uh, Matthew is doing what I call a biblical theological interpretation of Hosea 11.1. 1. Now, uh, there are many definitions of biblical theology. Uh, what I mean by it this morning is this. 
that Matthew is looking at Hosea 11.1 in the context of the entire book. And once you understand that, it makes complete sense. In fact, it's another example ultimately of how contextual that Matthew, in fact, is keeping in mind, not just the context of chapter 11.1 in its immediate context, but in the light of the whole book. So um, the first thing that we want to do is look at chapter 11 and see what the context of all of chapter 11 is. Again, a difficult passage. Uh, And so we want to see how in the world can Matthew take this, apply what was true of a nation to an individual, apply something that was a historical reference, and transform it into a prophecy. How can he do that? On the surface, it seems quite strange. First of all, let's look at chapter 11. Verse 1, when Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But they did not respond faithfully. Notice verses 2 through 5. We find that as a result of the deliverance from Egypt, they did not respond in loyalty to God, but worshipped idols, despite the grace God had shown them. Read with me verses 2 to 5. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to Baals, burning incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk says God. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. I bent down and fed them. They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria. He will be their king because they refuse to return to me. So this is the beginning announcement of a judgment because they have just kicked God in the face. He's been gracious, and they have spurned him. Then verses 6 to 7 show clearly God's going to judge them, even more explicitly than verse 5. Verse 6, And the sword will whirl against their cities, will demolish their gate bars, consume them because of their counsels. So my people are bent on turning from me, though they call them to the one on high, the prophets, prophets call them to the one on high, none at all exalts him. So they're going to be judged. But now in verses um, 8 through 9, There's a little shift here. Notice what God says with regard to the prior announcement of judgment. Verse 8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can can I surrender you, O Israel? And and these are questions. And really, the answers are, I'm not going to. He's still going to judge them, but not absolutely. How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboyim? By the way, those are names for Sodom and Gomorrah. My heart's turned over with him in me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. That is, absolutely. I will not destroy Ephraim again. Uh, I I wish I could go into that for a while. When did he destroy Ephraim? He hadn't destroyed them yet. Well, he had destroyed uh, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboyim. And um, I think in some way they're identified with them corporately. Um, And I think they're seen as a type of Israel's unfaithfulness. Of course, we know elsewhere Israel's compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. But I'm not going to go further into that. It's uh, incidental for our purposes. But uh, the point is that God is not, he's going to judge them, but there's going to be some mercy. What is that mercy? Well, it's verses 10 and 11. They will walk after the Lord. There'll be a time coming after this judgment. They'll walk after the Lord. He'll roar. God will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar. His sons will come trembling from the west. 
They'll come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. So there'll be a restoration of judgment. He's, he's going to send them in exile, he says in verse 5, but now they're going to come back, not only from Assyria, but from the west and from Egypt. If you really follow the thought flow in this chapter, the grand climax is God will restore his people. And by the way, where is he going to restore them from? Look at verse 10. Um, they will walk after me. He'll roar like a lion. Verse 11, they will come trembling like birds from Egypt. Egypt is one of the places they're going to come from. So the grand climax of this passage is God's going to restore Israel out of Egypt. It's a prophecy this time. It begins with a reference to the past. He brought them out of Egypt, and they rebelled. He will judge them, and yet he's going to restore them. And they'll come out of Egypt again. Um, so this verse in verse 1 is part of a chapter, a literary unit. And by the way, chapter verse 12 really starts the next chapter on judgment again. So the, 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 the real end of this unit is verse 11. So verse 1, out of Egypt I call my son, really is leading on to a redemptive historical climax of God restoring Israel out of Egypt in the future. Now at this point we could just stop and say, could it be that Matthew is merely interpreting verse 1 in the light of the whole chapter, especially what it's leading to as a climax in verse 11. And that Israel coming out of Egypt the first time and being unfaithful is a foreshadowing. You're going to have a recapitulation. They're going to come out of Egypt again. And this time, they'll be faithful. Um, I think just on the basis of that, we could see Matthew interpreting uh, verse 1 as a foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the future. Because, in fact, that's how <laughs> the chapter ends. They're going to come out again. History recapitulates itself. I think Matthew probably was seeing that history will recapitulate itself, and that's according to Hosea himself. And so he takes verse 1 as a prophecy because he's reading it as an event that will be recapitulated in the future, as verse 11 says. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt. Well, that helps us a little bit, uh, but still, why would he apply what's true of a nation to an individual? Well, I want to just go a little bit further, though, in enforcing this point uh, that the first exodus is a pattern pointing to a last end time exodus. And the first thing I want to do is uh, say that our passage in verses 10 and 11 uh, itself is the use of Scripture. By the way, Hosea, if you, if you really want to do something really interesting at some point, Look at your scriptural margins, if you have them, uh, in Hosea. Uh, not long ago, I just was an external examiner for a dissertation on the use of the Pentateuch in Hosea. It was amazing how much the scriptures are used in Hosea. 
And if you begin to understand how the Old Testament's used in the Old, when you get to the New, there's not much surprise. It's very intriguing. And so here's another example. Let's look at this. Here we have a passage in which um, I think this Numbers text is used in Hosea 11. So that we, we have Numbers, and remember this is in the context of Balaam, and uh, Balak has asked Balaam to curse Israel, and of course he can't because God has uh, decreed to bless them. And so uh, beginning in um, uh, Numbers 23, God brings them out of Egypt. Okay, that's just talking about what's happened at the Exodus. He is for them like the horns of a wild ox. Verse 24, Behold, a people rises like a lioness, and as a lion it lifts itself. It will not lie down until it devours the prey. Numbers 24, 8. Now that's the people. The people are compared, coming out of Egypt, to a lion who devours prey. Now Numbers 24, 8. God brings him out of Egypt. If you read in the context, it doesn't look like this is the corporate hymn for Israel, but I think that it is the king. God brings him out of Egypt. He is for him like the horns of the wild ox. And then Numbers 24, 9, I hope you can see that. He couches, the king, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him? Now, that this probably is the king here who's being compared to a lion, this itself, we can just keep going this morning, this is an allusion back to Isaiah, uh, Genesis 49.10, where the uh, Judah king, to whom the obedience of the nations will be given, is compared to a lion. So that indicates that here the lion is compared to the people, here it's compared to the king, but now look, he will roar like a lion when he restores Israel as they come from Egypt. Here, probably, the lion is compared to God. It could be the king, but probably more to God. And, of course, the king, kings represent God, uh, um, as, as we know in Scripture. And, uh, and, of course, Israel was to reflect God himself. And so uh, it, it, would, it would make sense that here God could be compared to a lion in association with his people who really were to represent him. Um, well, what difference does all that make? Well, have you noticed? These are Exodus texts. This is now a prophecy in Hosea 11. He's taking the event of the Exodus and making it now, it's recapitulated. It's now a prophecy. Couldn't Matthew do that with verse 1? Hosea did it with Exodus. I think Matthew's just a good Old Testament. He could have been a prophet. Amazing. Um, there's, there's nothing, uh, he was a prophet. There's nothing new here if you really uh, uh, get into interpreting Scripture by Scripture. So that what Matthew has done with Hosea 11.1 is just what Hosea did in 11.10 with uh, the Exodus. Um, Nothing new there. So um, we're beginning to see more basis, more interpretative integrity with what Matthew does. Maybe we could say it this way. If Matthew's out to lunch interpretatively, well, so is Hosea, and we're going to see the whole Bible. But no, we don't think they were out to hermeneutical lunch. Now, these two numbers passages that we put up up here are the only places in the Old Testament 
where it says God brings, quote, Israel out of Egypt, in quotation, and secondly, where the deliverer or the delivered is being compared to a lion. So that is all to say Hosea 11.10 is definitely alluding back to the Exodus and seeing it as a foreshadowing, and it becomes a prophecy of the future. So the main point or goal of Hosea 11.1 through 11 is the accomplishment of Israel's future restoration from the nations, including Egypt. And the overall meaning of chapter 11 is to indicate that God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt, which led to their ungrateful belief, is not the final word about God's deliverance of them. Though they'll be judged, God will deliver them again from Egypt. So Hosea appears to understand then that Israel's first exodus was to be recapitulated at the time of the nation's latter-day exodus. But there is still more undergirding this notion of why Hosea would see that this future prophecy of Israel coming out of Egypt in 11, 10, and 11 uh, is just a recapitulation of the first exodus and that the first exodus foreshadows the second And that is that we have other texts in uh, Hosea itself which help us see that uh, Hosea is consumed with the idea of Israel's first exodus and then a second exodus. And that's what I want to show you now. Just notice here, I have these overheads because I, I, you know, it, it could be a little confusing to try to do all of this just orally. Um, but here we have um, Hosea 2.15. Now this is part of a prophecy of Israel's restoration in the future, but notice Israel, she will, be, she will sing there as in the days of her youth. As in the day, this is in the place of restoration, she will sing, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. Um, so that's a reference to the past, isn't it? As in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. But you, you see, it's part of a prophecy that she's going to act again, as she did earlier in the Exodus. So it's even part of a prophecy. The future restoration of Israel is going to be like the old day when Israel came out of the Exodus. Hosea 12:3. But by a prophet the Lord brought Israel from Egypt, and by a prophet he was kept. So again, just a past reference to the past Exodus. But now all of a sudden, we get this staccato-like reference to Israel again going into Egypt in the future. Now, some of these are texts, they're not saying they're going to come back, but if they're going to go into Egypt in the future, then they've got to come back. And so I think it's important to um, look at that. Hosea 7.11 says, So Ephraim um, has become like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria, Um, so Egypt is one of the places that they call to for help. Uh, Next text, their princes will fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This will be their derision in the land of Egypt. They will go into Egypt in the future, that's the point. Um, Now he will remember their iniquity, punish them for their sins. They will return to Egypt. Uh, They will not remain in the Lord's land, but Ephraim will return to Egypt and uh, they will go to Assyria. For behold, they will go because of destruction. Egypt will gather them up. Now, if they're going to go to Egypt, it makes sense that chapter 11 and verse 11 will say, they're going to come back from Egypt. 
In fact, I'd like you to turn with me to Hosea 11.1 now. I'm sorry, chapter 1 of Hosea in verse 11. And it says in verse 11, this is another restoration of Israel text. And the sons of Israel and the sons of, or the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together. And they will appoint themselves one leader. They will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. It seems kind of like a, a throwaway sentence. They'll go up from the land. What's that about? Well, that phrase, remember that's future now. This is a future restoration passage. That phrase comes... There it is, Hosea 11.1. 1. First of all, we know what the land is. There's a lot of debate in, among commentators about what the land is there. What land? They're going to go up from the land of Israel? Well, that's weird. That's where they're going to, supposedly, to be restored back. Are they going up from, what land is it? Well, chapter 2 says she went up from the land of Egypt. Remember? Uh, and uh, it was comparing their past exodus to... Uh, their future restoration as another exodus, and clearly here going up from the land. Well, that Hebrew, for those I know some of you know Hebrew, uh, with men, uh, with uh, aretz, um, uh, go up from the land. Found right here, it's clearly Egypt here. But furthermore, what makes it even clearer is that whenever you study uh, in the Hebrew Bible, the uh, Hebrew word go up, Allah, with the preposition men, with aretz, it exclusively, it's used quite a lot, 15 to 30 times, always means Israel. Sometimes it's Moses going up, sometimes it's the nation going up. Specifically, probably these two texts, though, are in mind. Uh, this text is probably using Exodus 1.10 or Isaiah 11.16. Exodus 1.10, the Pharaoh says, you know, if we don't do something to them, they're going to go up from the land. Isaiah eleven sixteen is a future restoration prophecy that says that Israel will be restored just as uh, he uh, went up from the land of Egypt. Um, so it, it may be here that both uh, Isaiah 11 and uh, Hosea are dependent on this are that uh, one of these is dependent on one another. Both Hosea and uh, Isaiah use this going up from the land of Exodus 1.10 as part of a future restoration prophecy. So what am I saying? All I'm saying is that um, throughout the uh, book of Hosea and elsewhere in the prophets, the first Exodus is seen as a pattern which will be recapitulated in a second half exodus. And really what we're really talking about is that, that, that events of the past, like the exodus, we could call them event prophecy. They're events that actually have a shaping power for the future. I'm sure some of you, my wife has a cookie mold. It's an antique cookie mold. It's just for decoration now. But true cookie molds, uh, the purpose of them is not to be an end in themselves and hang them up as decoration on a wall. A true cookie mold has molding power. Right? Most of them, time, you know, little metal things, and you, you mold the dough in them. So a cookie mold is not a mold that has an end in itself. It has 
a goal, and that is the star-shaped cookie, for example, at Christmas. And so these events, like the Exodus, they're not an end in themselves in the decree of God in his narrative of history. They, are, they have a molding, shaping power for the future. And that's what's going on in our passage. And uh, uh, so that, um, again and again, the prophets and Hosea, we see, see this past Exodus as uh, a pattern for the future Exodus, and that's why they directly prophesy that Israel's future restoration will be um, like the exodus of old. Now, if one were to have asked Hosea if he believed that God was sovereign over history and that God had designed that the first exodus from Egypt was a historical pattern that foreshadowed a second exodus from Egypt, I don't want to be presumptive, but I think the evidence in Hosea and the prophets would be, he would say, yes, the first exodus is a pattern for the second exodus. So that if you ask him about Hosea 11.1, hey, Hosea, when you wrote Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I call my son, it's a past reference, do you believe that that really uh, is going to be recapitulated in the future? I don't want to be presumptive, but I think from what we've seen, I think he would say yes, especially since this chapter ends with uh, a restoration uh, uh, out of Egypt. Um, So I think that we have a a very good interpretative basis with hermeneutical integrity, hermeneutics being the principles of interpretation, the basis for what Matthew is doing in applying a past reference to Israel's exodus uh, makes complete sense as to why he would uh, apply that to the future and see it as a prophecy. Hosea himself in Hosea 11, 11 takes Exodus 23 or Numbers 23 and 24 past Exodus, and makes it into a prophecy. But we still have a problem. And that problem is, how can Matthew take what's true of a nation and apply it to an individual? So we still have a problem. Um, And by the way, I will say that I've been criticized uh, in my understanding of the use of the old menu, and especially as it relates to the uh, authority of Scripture, but just really even aside from the authority of Scripture, I've been criticized. Some have said that uh, if Beale finds a difficult passage of the Old Testament and the New, uh, he believes if you go back and you just work hard enough at interpreting the Old, that most of the time you'll find the answer. Now, that was a criticism. I, I, I said yes. I, so, at, at any rate, I think he thought that that's a triumphalistic view. I rather think it's a view of letting Scripture interpreting Scripture. Um, so there's, there's more then. How can the nation uh, be applied to one person? Well, um, remember that we saw already. Remember this. We saw in, in numbers that what, what could be described of the nation coming out of Egypt like a lion was applied to the king coming out of Egypt like a lion. And then it could be described of God. But already, you've already got in numbers the same description of the king as of the nation. Why? The the king represents the nation. Already, I think, even before we get to Hosea, I think we can see some rationale that what's true of the nation is true of the king. What's true of the king is true of the nation. But I think that also 
this, this uh, uh, phrase that we just looked at, look at Hosea 11.1 1 with me, I mean, sorry, chapter 1, verse 11, I'm going 11.1, 1, 1, 11. Look at uh, Hosea 1.11. Let's, let's read it again. This is a restoration prophecy of the future from Hosea's vantage point. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea which cannot be measured or numbered. And it will come about that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. That's going to be an important phrase in a moment, sons of the living God. But verse 11 is what I want to focus on now. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together. And they will appoint for themselves one leader. And they'll go up from the land. Remember, go up from the land, that's from Egypt in the future. But notice the preceding phrase, right before they go up from the land, they'll appoint for themselves one leader. A rosh in Hebrew. Most commentators identify this with a king. So that they're going to be led by a king. And in fact, this king is further defined very clearly in chapter 3, not coincidentally, in another future restoration text. Look with me in Hosea 3, 4. For the sons of Israel will remain... For many days, without a king. This is uh, its time of captivity. They'll remain without a prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or household idols. Probably allusion there to the fact that in their temple worship before the exile, they were idolatrous. Verse 5, after this desolation of Israel and the implicit captivity, afterward the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. So clearly we have a reference to this end time king who's going to lead them out of restoration. And by the way, notice that in verse 5, they'll come trembling. Hosea 11, uh, 10 and 11 says that in the future restoration, Israel would also come trembling. It's a different Hebrew word, but they're synonyms. So when we look again, let's come back to Hosea 11, 1. If the king truly represents the nation, as we've already seen is pretty explicit in Numbers 23 to 24, as they came out of Egypt in the past, also in the future, in verse 11, when they come up from the land, i.e. the land of Israel, they're led by one leader, one head, one head who heads them up. And so um, it makes great sense that... uh, uh, if the leader represents the people, you can speak, uh, you can describe uh, the leader like the people and vice versa. I think that that is what Matthew is doing. He's aware that it's not just the people who will return, but it is the king ahead who will head them up in returning. And I think that this is one of the reasons within the context of Hosea that he applies what's true of the nation to the king. But there's more. Look at the end of verse 10 of chapter 1. As a part of this restoration prophecy at the, very, the last three lines of verse 10, uh, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. You are the sons of the living God. Now, very interesting that the only other place where you have the phrase son with living God God. There's only one other place in all of the Bible. And it's in the New Testament. Anybody know? Where you have 
the, the word son or sons plus living God. This is likely an illusion. Matthew 16, 16 is an illusion. A description of the nations and in its future restoration in Hosea 1.10. And now we see that Hosea is still not out of mind even after chapter 2. That there's a reference to the Messiah, that future eschatological king. That's what Mashiach means, the anointed one, the anointed eschatological king, the son of the living God. This probably is part of the undercurrent of why, again, that Matthew identifies Jesus with the nation because kings represented their, uh, uh, the, the nation and likewise Jesus represents his people, the new people of God. But there's something else that's very helpful here. And that is... I mentioned to you, I was reading that dissertation on the use of the Pentateuch in Hosea. And again and again and again, what was shown uh, in, in that study was that Hosea will take individuals from the Pentateuch, Adam or Jacob, uh, others, and he would apply, he would take their descriptions, descriptions of the individuals, and apply them to the nation. Sometimes it would be good descriptions, sometimes bad descriptions. In some way, they're corporately identified with those earlier figures. In some way, those earlier figures have a shaping power on what's happened to them, either in their sin or in their blessing. For example, if you remember in Hosea 6-7, it says, like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. Now, there's debate about that, but I think Warfield, there's uh, an article in his selected writings where he contends, I think rightly, and most recent literature in the Old Testament has defended this, by the way, that uh, it is Adam and not just mankind or something else. Or Jacob in chapter 12, verses 2 to 5 um, I'm not going to go into detail. I will read it, though. In uh, 12, 2 to 5, the description of Jacob is about his sin. And um, you'll notice in 12, Ephraim feeds on wind, 12, 1, and pursues the east wind continually. He multiplies lies and violence. Moreover, he makes a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has a dispute with Judah, and he'll punish Jacob according to his ways. Now, well, that's the nation, isn't it? Keep reading. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his maturity, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel, prevailed. He wept, sought his favor, found him at Bethel, spoke with us, even the Lord of hosts. The Lord is his name. Therefore, return to your God. Now, part of this is Jacob's own unfaithfulness that's being compared to Ephraim in its unfaithfulness. Um, there are a number of others. One of the most interesting ones however, is in um, Hosea 2.15, where uh, we have a very sinful situation, um, but it's, it's reversed. In, in Hosea 
I will give Israel her vineyards from there, and the valley of Achor is a door of hope. She'll sing there in the days of her youth. The valley of Achor uh, is the place where Achan and his family were taken to be executed for his sin. Hosea takes it and sees that as a pattern that is a reverse pattern. That now what's happened to Israel after she came out of Egypt and how she sinned is represented by Achan. It is, there'll be a time when Israel will be faithful. Just as in Romans 5.14, Paul takes Adam and his disobedience and sees Adam as a type, a foreshadowing of Christ's obedience. See, whenever there's a lack in the Old Testament with prophets and priests and kings, the lack cries out for someone to fill it up. And, um, and that's why these things are filled up in our prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ. Well, so what difference does this make that Hosea is using Genesis in these ways? That, that he'll take a description of one individual, often a patriarch. Sometimes it'll be a good description applied to Israel in its restoration in the future and blessing. Sometimes a, a sinful description now applied to Israel uh, in its sinfulness. Well... Um, what's Matthew doing? Matthew is going from the many to the one. Matthew is going from what's true of the nation to the king. So the, it's the same kind of uh, interpretative method. You can go from the one and apply what's true of the one to the many, or go from the many and apply what's true of the many to the one. It's the same hermeneutical, methodological rationale. And so if Hosea was up there at the right hand of God when Matthew did what he did, uh, and someone said, uh, uh, if Hosea was up there and, and, and Matthew was interpreting the way he did, and someone asked Hosea, what do you think of that? Um, Hosea said, I think he would say Matthew's using the same interpretative method that I used. Um, I went from one to many, and he's going from the many to the one. This idea of corporate representation is what ties those two together. Um, so this is the upshot of um, what I've been saying this morning, that Matthew portrays Jesus to be recapitulating the history of Israel because he sums Israel up in himself. Since Israel disobeyed, Jesus has come to do what they should have. And so to, to show that, he sees Jesus as a little miniature Israel, summing Israel up in himself because he's faithful. So he's got to go into Egypt and then come out of Egypt again, yes, to fulfill prophecy, but to show that he is true Israel. The attempt to kill the Israelite infants, remember. And the journey of Jesus and his family into Egypt and back to the promised land again is the same basic pattern that we found in the Old Testament in, in Egypt. Uh, this pattern is expressed by appeal to Hosea 11.1 in Matthew, where Matthew says that the trip to Egypt and back is the fulfillment of this prophecy of Hosea 11.1 in the light of its context of chapter 11, in the light of its context of Hosea, and in the light of the way other Old Testament prophets use the Exodus. So Matthew contrasts Jesus as the son with Hosea's son, in 11.1. By the way, it's, it's, it's also a, a contrast. The latter came out of Egypt. They were not obedient. They were judged. They would be restored while the former did what Israel should have done. Jesus did what Israel should have done. He came out of Egypt perfectly obedient, 
did not deserve judgment. He suffered it anyway in order to restore us to God and provide us with his righteousness. So I think that the use of Hosea 11.1 is an example of how important, number one, the Exodus patterns are uh, uh, in the New Testament, and especially to Matthew and to other New Testament writers, and to other Old Testament writers, by the way, and how important it is to understand the mission of the church and of Jesus. Uh, and it shows, after all, we can trust the interpretative approach of Matthew, and we can trust, I think, by extension. This is just one example, but um, I think uh, in the light of uh, what Dave Garner has said, I think we can trust the um, interpretative approach of the New Testament writers, not just because they were good interpreters, but because they were inspired by God. And I think that we can follow their interpretative approach as uh, a model to use ourselves. In this particular case this morning, the first Exodus, when you see it, is a foreshadowing of the last Exodus. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the faithfulness of your word. Help us to realize we may not always understand it. As your servant Paul said, right now we see dimly as though through a mirror, but then when Christ comes, uh, we'll see all things, and know all things, even as we have been known and uh, with regard to redemptive history, and cause us, Lord, to trust and submit to your word, and not exalt our minds over your word to give it a critique. But may we stand under it always, ever faithfully and be under its critique and conform our lives in repentance to your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.